Welcome back to the 48th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including should the Democrats be opposed in the courts or should Republicans get down and dirty when it comes to some of the new voting policies that have been put in place over the last four years? There's a predictable resurgence of fascism and Nazism on both sides of the Atlantic. We'll discuss that further. And we have one more article talking about progressives and the GOP finally teaming up. And it might not be over what you think. And of course, we will end a day with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. At what point do we realize that the system we are a part of is not necessarily serving our best interests? At what point do we reform it, reevaluate it? And, you know, I may sound a little bit cynical, but today's article's they don't really inspire hope, at least in my opinion, and I don't want to be a downer the entire time, but they definitely don't leave me the most positive about the future of America. And they all highlight in one way or another that the system is failing, or at least it has obvious flaws. And for some people listening, they may be like, Alex, of course it has flaws. What do you mean? We've known the system's had flaws for years, but these flaws are not necessarily ones that are things that divide us, but rather that provide issues for everybody. And what I mean by that is they're not issues of equality or treatment under the law or things of that nature that are naturally divisive and only affect a certain segment of the population. But these are all things that affect every single person, every single voter. They could be considered, quote, partisan issues if the politicians in power actually cared enough to change anything. So, and I point out here that, you know, the church, they went through reformations. We've passed amendments before. So at what point do we reevaluate and try to reestablish the values that America holds so dear and try to correct the ship? And I know that's a lot, but if you have an opinion or on any part of what I just said, or if you think I'm absolutely crazy and you just want to call me out for anything I just said, throw it down in the comments. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. All right. We're going to start with our first article from The Daily Signal. GOP should fight Democrats' dodgy voting schemes in court, not surrender and play catch-up. So first, we should probably talk about what the author means by play catch-up. So during COVID, mainly mail-in voting and early voting laws were passed across the United States from Pennsylvania, Arizona, uh, a few different ones in California. Many states passed a lot of early voting and absentee voting measures to ensure that people could stay home and be safe during a time that was a little bit more volatile and people were scared of the COVID pandemic. And though that rationale made sense during those times, these laws have persisted. They were seen in a lot of places. Some places wanted to pass them permanently anyway. But a lot of these locales called them temporary measures in order to ensure that voting would go smoothly and so that the population could ensure that they were heard. 
and whether or not they actually made the voting process more smooth, which I would argue they didn't, considering the amount of states that are now having problems counting votes and ensuring that vote counts are reliable when it comes to mail-in and absentee ballots, which in some states get counted last, even though they're the first votes to come in, which I think is a bit odd. You know, this kind, these kind of measures, at the end of the day, the author is trying to say the Republicans shouldn't be endorsing them. The Republican Party has noticed that the Democrats have taken full advantage of these policies that are put in place. And not in an I'm not saying in an illegal way. I'm saying in a totally legal way in that they have networks in place. They have grassroots networks that go out and harvest ballots. For those of you that don't understand the ballot harvesting process, Democrats, Republicans, anybody who wants to ensure that their party gets votes, they'll go out and they will go to locations that are normally highly dense in population. This could be apartment buildings or busy streets where there are lots of houses. And they go and they talk to a lot of these different people who may not vote or may not already know who they want to vote for. And they will suggest that they vote for a candidate. They'll give the reasoning. They'll kind of talk on their behalf, talk about their policies. And then they'll take the ballot from the person and go drop it off at a drop box. And this may sound a little weird to some people. And if you're in California, this sounds totally normal. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Some random guy can come up to my house and he can take my vote to the drop box. And, you know, I can trust him to do that. And Democrats have these networks in place to, quote, unquote, harvest ballots to get as many votes out for their candidate as possible. They may go to low information voters and say, hey, this is what this person's going for. And the low information voter may say, okay, yes, thank you. Get off my property now. I'll vote for your Democrat and I'll give you the ballot. And in other cases, they may just want to ensure that as many people participate as possible. And they may go to these locations and not really try to persuade them one way or another. And they may just say, I'll drop off your ballot for you. I don't care who you're voting for. I just want to make sure that the American populace is you know, heard at the end of the day. And that's a very important fact that we need to distinguish here, that ballot harvesting, though it can be used in a way that is favorable towards one party or another, at the end of the day, when it was first implemented, though it was a political strategy by some people, there were a lot of good-natured people saying, yes, I'll go out, I'll take your ballot if you don't have the time to submit it on the day of, and I'll drop it off in a mail a mailbox. And though, you know, this was very rare because mail-in ballots or absentee ballot forms were very hard to come by. They were a little bit more restricted. You normally had to apply for them. Now, with this system in place in a lot of states where basically everybody gets sent out a ballot for the most part, if you are registered to vote, you get sent a ballot, then these ballot harvesting schemes or processes that the Democrats already have in place is very favorable to them. They already have the people willing to go out and talk to these voters and take their ballots to the mailbox. So the author's trying to ask the question, should Republicans at the end of the day stoop down to that level and start building out their own network and try to take advantage of ballot harvesting, or should they challenge it in the courts? 
And, you know, I think there's a, a great quote that kind of summarizes the first segment of its point. Quote, longing for the elusive red wave, some GOP officials and operatives are suffering Stockholm Syndrome. They think it's long time to surrender to Democrats, swallow their dodgy voting schemes, and eventually sink them with early mail-in and traffic ballots, drop boxes, and ballots received and counted days and weeks after polls close, etc. Rather than switch, Republicans should fight. They have nothing less than federal law and the U.S. Constitution on their side. The GOP should litigate this matter all the way to the Supreme Court before ever yielding to Democrats' rabid vision of how Americans should vote, end quote. So the author points out here, and giving a little bit more context to what he means by the law and the Constitution, the Constitution says that the election will be held on the first Sorry, this Tuesday after the first Monday. So that is a set date. It is always the day the election will be held. So there shouldn't be voting after. There should be results for the most part on that day. They should not be allowing ballots to come in after that date. They should not be counting for too long after that date, if after that date at all. And that's what the author is really getting at here, as well as highlighting that some of these states... When they have mail-in or absentee ballots, some people can submit these months in advance. In some locations, it was in September when they could submit their ballot. And you may be asking, well, why is that a bad thing? They can, they can submit it early. But it, the example the author brings out here is think about the John Fetterman versus Mehmet Oz debate. At the end of the day, whether you liked Fetterman or Oz, Fetterman's appearance on that stage in his let's just say the way he went about handling a lot of the questions and issues mentioned was not the most senatorial. His speech was very slurred. You could tell that there was some sort of cognitive function issue. And if people had voted in September, they can't take their vote back now, even though that debate was before the election day itself. So if people are able to vote that early ahead of time and not let everything unfold, then they may not be able to have all the important information. If you talk about the Hunter Biden laptop story, that came out as an October surprise with the relieving of some mail-in voting and absentee ballot procedures, people during that presidential election could also vote during September. Even though the Hunter Biden story didn't get as much press as people think it should have, and it may not have had such a huge impact as people thought it may, still some voters who voted in September didn't have that crucial information. They didn't have the ability to change their vote. They didn't have the ability to vote with all the proper information because they said, oh, well, I'm going to be a good citizen. I'm going to vote early. I'm going to get it out of the way because I have it, I have this ability now. Might as well take advantage of it. So that's what the author's really getting at and saying that at the end of the day, this is not a good process. That common sense says that we shouldn't let people vote, have their vote counted after the election day, and we shouldn't have people voting too far out from the election without all the information. And also the Constitution clearly outlines that that's the case. There is a clear set day that the election should take place on and that we should have most of the information we need to make sure our government transitions effectively within the next month or two. 
So, but Republicans have been fighting in the courts, and that's the thing the author kind of skips past because the talk now is more about stooping down and going to bar- ballot harvesting. But for the last two years, Republicans really have been facing the mandates and the legislation brought by the Democrats in the courts. It has been mostly unsuccessful, though. But, you know, it really sounds noble. The author is saying we have to go through the courts. We have to ensure that we do this the right way. And that sounds like a very noble cause. But at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, are we willing, if the, you're a Republican, you have to ask yourself, are you willing to lose? Are you willing to not take any advantage that is given to you in order to win and ensure that if you're a true Republican and you really believe in the Republican Party and what it stands for, are you really willing to lose and not be able to implement things that you think are extremely important to the survival and the prospering of our nation in the future. And I don't have an answer for that. And to be honest, I've thought about it myself. I have sat down while writing this article and after to ask myself, do I really think we should keep fighting this in the courts? Do I think that it's a noble pursuit or do I think that the Republicans should get down in the dirt and play dirty? And I, I don't know because at the end of the day, while I think that it is essential that we hold the strong values and the powers that be in check with the proper checks and balances, a.k.a. anything that's passed by a legislator should be addressed by a court of some kind, or at least can't be addressed that way. And I think it's important that we keep those checks and balances in mind and that we use them when it is acceptable. But at the end of the day, do I really want to see a degrading of the norms and allow ballot harvesting to become a normal practice? Because at the end of the day, it feels like one step closer to another form of potential corruption or a potential scheme to possibly harvest a certain segment of the population's ballots more than others and to ensure that the elections are not extremely fair. So, but it also offers Republicans the opportunity to play on even terms. And it's a question of whether you hold true to your values that the American court system, the American system itself, is able to sustain these sort of pressures from legislators or whether we need the parties need to adapt and make sure that they're on even playing field. And that may shift the norms a little bit and that may change the values. But at the end of the day, if at least they're on the same terms and they can actually have a quote unquote fair election that allows the populace to fully voice their opinion and make sure that it's balanced. So you have to weigh those two things. And to be honest, I don't know if I'm intellectually smart enough or I don't know if I can necessarily look at my own values enough and say I have an answer to that question. I just think it's an important discussion that the author brings up inadvertently and that definitely needs to be had. And that's something I want you to leave this article thinking about. I know I didn't dive too much into what the author was saying, but it was more because I wanted to bring up this discussion of are we willing to address the flaws in the system and actually try to tackle it from within the system, or does there have to be outside reformation and change that 
makes the system more balanced. And that's kind of the running theme of today's article, and that's, or sorry, today's podcast. And that's why I opened with the daily debate that I did. So yes, this is a art, this is a podcast that's a little bit more trying to be intellectually stimulating, or at least not to be, because that, let's be honest, I am not intellectually stimulating at all, but at least pose a bigger question. One that is a little bit different than just reading the news, but asking those questions of, are we willing at the end of the day to keep the system in place or do we have to change it? And these are, this is a big question that I've been thinking about myself. And that's why I said today's episode is a little bit more cynical because if you think that the American system is perfect, then obviously that question would never come up. You would never ask, well, do we need to change the system as it is? All right. So we're going to move to our second article from Counterpunch. The Predictable Resurgence of Fascism and Nazism on Both Sides of the North Atlantic and Its Consequences. So we'll give a a brief, brief, very brief history of fascism. And that's what the author opens up with by explaining the origins of fascism. And, you know, of course, there are very many factors. But the one that the author really hones in on is the economic displacement of the working class. Quote, fascism in Southern Europe and the United States and Nazism in Central and Northern Europe and also the U.S. capitalized on the resulting discontent. And when he says discontent, he means discontent of the working slash middle class. These movements acquired significant influence on both sides of the North Atlantic, ultimately governing several countries of Western Europe. So there are things that you know get very interesting when the author makes correlations or connections to modern day and tries to show parallels between pre-World War II and the economic situation and political situations developing in countries today, such as Sweden. That's the main example that the author gives in Europe and the United States. And we'll touch a little bit more on Sweden than the United States because I think that to be honest, once you hear some of the Swedish issues that have driven a little bit more of a nationalist movement, a little bit more of a right-wing movement, as the author calls it, even though that's not necessarily the case because there are both progressives and right-wingers who are pushing these neoliberal policies, um, you'll actually, once you hear what's happening in Sweden, you'll be able to understand the connection to America very easily. And I think... People have talked about the American issue enough. I think I really want to highlight the Sweden aspect of this. So the author obviously talked about the economic downturn that happened before World War II and also the economic crises that we faced in 2008 and the growing economic strain that we're under right now post-COVID and even during COVID, they talk about. And also the author talks about the slow growth of connectivity within the world's labor market and the ease that companies have of going outside their own country and finding very cheap labor in other countries. And also the ease of movement, meaning that people can easily migrate to other countries. You could literally drive from Guatemala to the U.S. if you chose and apply to be a citizen. And now you have migrants coming in who also can be used for cheaper labor within home countries. And, you know, this is a very hot topic in the U.S., obviously. Migration, immigration has always been a hot topic, whether it be the Irish or 
whether it be Hispanics or people coming in from Africa. It has always been a hot topic because a lot of people feel like it's slowly displacing certain jobs that they could take advantage of if they wanted to work in some of these locations in California or some of the farms in Arizona or manufacturing jobs in Ohio. A lot of these middle-class workers, which if you notice, that's what the author was talking about initially, feel like these jobs that are very crucial to how they live their lives, that are very, the very existence of a lot of middle-class Americans, they allow them to provide for their family, then you can see how this migration issue is very important to them and how if a lot of migration has become easier and more people can come to their country and displace them or the companies can now hire cheaper labor in other countries and therefore offshore their manufacturing processes to other countries and those middle-class workers lose their job. You can see how they're discontent at this system. And the author highlights a few policies and changes in Sweden that kind of talk about this. And I want to pull out a quote here. Quote, austerity policies and labor market deregulation were especially important in expanding the antagonism towards immigration, which increased substantially during this time. In 2015, Sweden experienced an immigration crisis when 163,000 immigrants arrived, doubling the number of immigrants in the country many of them from Syria, Turkey, Iran, and Afghanistan. All of these measures explain the growth of the Nazi party. In 2011, the party won only 5.7% of the vote, with just 8% of the population believing that immigration was a problem. Four years later, in 2015, when immigration peaked, the Nazi party obtained the support of 20% of the population. The following year, 24% of Swedes regarded immigration as the country's most significant problem. Recently, 44% cited immigration as among the biggest problems facing the country. And of course, this is different in Sweden because Sweden is a very homogeneous society, whereas America is not so much. We are a country of immigrants, so that's why it's not as hotly talked about. But at the end of the day, a lot of these working class people feel as though they're being displaced or feel as though they're losing their jobs to people that are not native uh, or born in the country that they're currently working in. And this has caused a lot of people to say, we need more nationalist and protectionist policies. We need more policies that favor people that were born in our country, which leads to more fascist and right-wing leaders. It's, it's what the author's getting at. If that always holds true, that's not necessarily the case. But the author's argument and thesis here is that this kind of protectionist movement, these policies that are being brought about by a ne neoliberal world order, not saying that there's a conspiracy, saying that the ideology that is currently prominent throughout the world is that we need to be more interconnected. We need to ensure that all of our markets are connected in some way, shape, or form, that we can go to other countries and help them grow by providing them with jobs. And, you know, it provides company with cheap labor and it provides those people with jobs to sustain their families and grow their wealth. So this kind of mentality, while it sounds great and it sounds like, oh, we're all going to come together and live under one giant globalist world, at the end of the day, it's causing a lot of people to be discontent, especially the working class who are being displaced. A lot of white-collar workers 
they don't necessarily get displaced because their jobs have to be done on the U.S. soil for the most part. Blue-collar workers, that's not necessarily the case. So that leads to them voting for more right-wing candidates who promise to bring back jobs, Trump, who promise to limit the amount of immigration, Trump, or the Nazi party in Sweden. And no, don't get me wrong, don't get it twisted. I'm not comparing Trump to Nazis. I'm just saying that both of these parties have come into power during this time, and immigration has been a key issue for both of them, and they've been able to leverage it and succeed. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying at the end of the day, if you push people, if you push the working class, if you push the blue-collar workers who feel as though that they're being left behind, that their voices are no longer important, then they're going to push back. And I think that's another part of the system in America that we need to address. All right. I know I ranted about this one long enough. Let's move on to our last article from Fox News. Progressives and GOP succeed in blocking Manchin's pipeline deal from National Defense Bill. So for once, the progressives and the Republicans have both been able to agree on something, which is that they are not going to support Joe Manchin's efforts to pass an amendment that would reduce the process for creating new oil and gas speculation projects. And at the end of the day, it's very interesting to me that the Republicans did not go for this. There were a lot of them who spoke about that it doesn't necessarily go far enough. Now, that makes sense to me that, oh, well, your your amendment doesn't go far enough. We need to make it even easier to open new projects. So, of course, they wouldn't vote for it. And, of course, there are certain progressives. They have a ideological perspective that oil and gas are not the future, that at the end of the day we need to ensure that we're using more green technology. So that makes sense that they didn't vote for it. But what really, really frustrates me about this is there are certain populations of the Republican Party, such as Lindsey Graham, who say that, no, 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 it has literally nothing to do with the policy itself, is that we're not going to give Joe Manchin a win. And I have a quote here, quote, A few also took umbrage with being asked to support the permitting bill and reward Manchin for helping deliver a big win for Democrats. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, even described the deal as a political payback scheme. Quote, Senator Manchin, if you think you're going to get 60 votes to get the sweeteners, end quote, said Graham, quote, you need to think long and hard about what you're doing, end quote. And why I find this extremely frustrating is it's, not even that they oppose it on the fact that it doesn't go far enough or that maybe it will disproportionately affect the population that they're representing. It's literally because it's Joe Manchin who delivered a big win for Democrats and they're saying, well, now that you did that, now that you sided with the Democrats when you were holding them up there for a while, we're going to punish you for it. Even though this policy could very well help their constituents, we're going to punish you for helping the Democrats and ensuring that they got their big infrastructure, or sorry, the Inflation Reduction Act passed. And I think this is extremely petty, and this is another flaw in the American system, which is at the end of the day, people are no longer worried about ensuring that they help their constituents. They're worried about getting reelected. They're worried about getting the political points they're worried about getting the five minute segments the quotes the five minute segments on tv the quotes in the newspapers and they're trying to play it up to a national audience rather than their constituents back at home now do i know what the people in lindsey graham's uh south carolina 
area district are saying maybe they didn't like this bill at all. Maybe they didn't like this. Sorry, they didn't like this amendment to the bill. Maybe they don't want this easy speculation. And maybe that's why Lindsey Graham came down and made the statement he made because he knew his people were already backing him so he could easily say something so inflammatory. But I think it shows at the end of the day, there's so much pettiness in politics. And like I said, they don't care about the people they're representing. They care about what they can get out of a situation and how they can punish the other side. Even if Joe Manchin has supported a lot of the legislation or defied some of the Democratic legislation and supported some of the Republican legislation. So at the end of the day, there can't be this bipartisanship anymore because now Joe Manchin's going to say, well, look, the Republicans spurned me even though I was doing something that could possibly benefit them and I held up the Democrats for a little bit and made the Spending and the Inflation Reduction Act a little bit lower. Now he's going to say, well, Republicans, screw you. I'm, I'm not going to work with you anymore because you're being petty about this. And it, at the end of the day, it's going to hurt the West Virginia constituents. It's going to hurt constituents in Arizona, in South Carolina. And this petty game that we're playing is another cause to question. Is the American system too flawed? Do we need to have different things in place, such as term limits to ensure that these politicians care about their constituents. They don't care about getting reelected. They don't care about the popularity contest on the national stage to make it to the next level of government. They need to serve their people for their two terms and then get the F out. And then they don't have to, or we put in restrictions so they can't become lobbyists. So then it's, once again, we're trying to limit the popularity contest. So I think these are questions that we need to ask and reevaluate what is important in the American political system nowadays? Is it the people that they're supposed to be serving or is it their long-term career and the amount of popularity they can gain on the world's, on the U.S. stage? So just questions, questions, questions. Not a lot of answers, but a lot of things to point out and a lot of questions that I'm posing to you or at least I want you to genuinely think about because I think they're important issues that at the end of the day will affect us long beyond me just ranting about it this year. I think it shows a, a deeper rot that's going to persist and over time could become even more toxic. But, you know, I've been talking about a lot of negative stuff. I've been very cynical. Let's get to our daily delight. And if you've made it this far and you're feeling a bit down, hopefully this pulls you right back up. So this story comes from South China Morning Post. Adorable fa- farm boy, five who tends goats, cooks, and does repairs. Trends in China after surprising many online with his independence. So have you ever imagined having kids and what it would be like? And, you know, I have myself. And if you've probably done that little mental game, you probably haven't imagined that your kid would be as productive as this little guy. A new story about an independent five-year-old boy from China's Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region who herds livestock, cooks, and does repairs around his family farm has gone viral on mainland social media, end quote. So when I have a kid, I hope that they are this productive and, you know, they're not glued to the TV. And honestly, I think this kid's more productive than I am, and I think I can be a pretty productive person sometimes, so good on him. Quote, a video of the unnamed little boy feeding a flock of goats and helping out on the farm was filmed this week and posted online, where it quickly gained traction. Lichi News reported the boy's mother, Shai Chu, said her son had developed many skills living on the farm since he was a toddler. However, she added that he had picked up a lot of them independently and that she encouraged him to learn new things by himself, end quote. 
And, you know, that's just the job of a mother. Make sure that your kid's well-prepared for the world, has a genuine curiosity, and is able to be self-sufficient. So, you know, this sounds like this mom's doing a, a great job. And it sounds like this kid's having a, a fun time. And there are lots of cute videos, too. And if you want to see any of those cute videos or read any of today's articles, you can find a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there is the Twitter handle at your daily flip. Try to I try to make commentary, quote, tweet, retweet something daily just to keep you informed, as well as post links on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to the podcast so you don't have to go search it on YouTube. But with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>